So are you finding the Odyssey, are you continuing to find it more um, pleasurable than the Iliad? <laughs> Would that be a good word for it, pleasurable? Good. Well, let's talk about, um, I assume that everyone is more or less to book 12, or is that a wrong assumption? What we really shouldn't talk about, if, if most of you haven't gotten there, we should uh, put off a little bit talking about the underworld. Uh, the trip to the underworld is crucial and central, and lots of really interesting things happen there. And it's really central to a whole lot of the literary imagination that uh, follows on from Homer. You will see a similar trip to the underworld in Virgil. The trip to the underworld is the main thing that happens in Dante, is Dante um, begins his trip to all the regions of the afterlife by starting out on a trip to the underworld in the company of Virgil, who's already, as I say, described Aeneas's trip to the underworld, which is uh, Virgil's riff on Odysseus's trip to the underworld. And what happens in the underworld is living people meet the dead. That's a really, really interesting conception. And the trip to the underworld is also what you're going to see in Paradise Lost, where Milton himself, <coughs> the narrator of Paradise Lost, describes what he's doing. We saw this at the beginning of book three, um, that he was that he was led by the muse into hell um, and now has been taught by her to reascend um, back to earth. So the trip from earth to the realm of the dead, to the underworld, and the return from that realm is something that we'll see over and over again. I said before that it's something that that is that happens in Philip Pullman. In fact, it's probably the climactic scene of his dark material is materials is when Lyra and Will travel to the world of the dead. Um, so it's quite an amazing thing and something that if most of you haven't reached yet, uh, we shouldn't um, get to today. So how many people actually have uh, gotten through at least book 11? I've read it before. So, you, yeah. All right, well, we'll see, we'll see if we get to it enough. There's some basic stuff that uh, we haven't talked about yet, but that we should. And um, an example, if you go to page 91, um, this is basic stuff about Homer. Um, go to page 91. This is um, a small example of something that you've no doubt noticed in much larger modes, which is a certain kind of repetition of lines of poetry. That is, lines of poetry that get repeated more than once, often the way it will work, and it happens a lot in the Iliad and happens a lot to the Odyssey, is Zeus will say to Iris or to Hermes or something, go and bring this message to Priam or to Odysseus and tell him and then you'll get 10 or 15 lines of um, description of what the message is, and then it'll be repeated. That is, um, Hermes or Iris will go to whoever they're supposed to go to, and they will say, now this is a thing that I think will be accomplished, which is that you must do this, and you'll get 
the same words, or sometimes the only sometimes you'll get a difference, which is that a third person formulation, he <coughs> he should go get the body and so on, will turn into a second formula second person formulation. You should go get the body, and Zeus will be with you. So he shall go get the, tell him that he should get the body, and I will be with him. You should get the body, and Zeus will be with you. So one example of it, which um, you can find them very frequently, but just to um, take an example, is um, Hermes is um, um, well start at start at line ninety two. So this is book five, line ninety two. Um, so the goddess Calypso speaks, and she set before him a table which she had filled with ambrosia, and mixed red nectar for him. The courier, Hermes Agraefontes, ate and drank them, but when he had dined and satisfied his hunger with eating, then he began to speak, answering what she had asked him, namely, what are you doing here? Um, now, again, notice, I say parenthetically, that before their business is transacted, she gives him a meal. This is something that we've seen over and over again. That is that entertainment of the stranger occurs here even among the gods. And then um, he answers after he's eaten his ambrosial fill, you a goddess ask me a god why I came. And therefore I will tell you the whole truth of the tale. It is you who asked me. It was Zeus who told me to come here. I did not wish to. Who would willingly make the run across this endless salt water? Notice again that even as Hermes is kind of um, complaining to Calypso about how far away she lives from um, how far out in the burbs she lives, the, the, the maritime burbs, um, what that's reminding us of is how isolated Odysseus is. It's even a hard trip for Hermes. One of the ironies throughout the Iliad and the Odyssey is that what's hard for humans is easy for the gods. Um, the gods can get anywhere they want at the speed of thought. But Calypso is so far away that it's even a hard trip for Hermes. There is no city of men nearby, nor people who offer choice hecatombs to the gods and perform sacrifice. But there is no way for another god to elude the purpose of Aegis bearing Zeus or bring it to nothing. So he says all this to Calypso and um, then go down to um, uh, line 135 where she's describing her own situation and she says, I gave him my love and cherished him and I had hopes also that I could make him immortal and all his days to be endless but since there is no way for another god to elude the purpose of Aegis bearing Zeus or bring it to nothing let him go, let him go if he himself is asking for this and desires it out on the barren sea. Now, the reason that I wanted you to notice this repetition is that she's not actually quoting Hermes. This isn't one of those cases where, where um, Zeus says, um, say this, and then 20 lines later, the person repeats what Zeus has told them to say. Here, what you get 
is something that looks like original speech on both their parts. That is to say, um, Hermes says something. There is no way for another god to elude the purpose of Aegis bearing Zeus or bring it to nothing. And she repeats those very words as though they're her own idea, as though she also is um, making that observation, not echoing the observation, but making the observation. This happens a lot in um, Homer, in both the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, another example, and this is one that, that um, I partly, again, draw your attention to because it's something that Virgil is going to pick up. If you go to page 93, which is the same book at line 192, um, Calypso is here talking to Odysseus, and um, she says that she is compassionate, that she will let him go, and then at line 192, so she spoke a shining goddess and led the way swiftly, so she's speaking to him, and then a line which really arrested Virgil's imagination, and the man <coughs> followed her walking in the god's footsteps. The man followed her walking in the god's footsteps. Virgil will echo that almost entirely, except it won't be a man and a god. It will be a child and a father, um, the child attempting to keep up with his father. The father is Aeneas, and the child is his son, Ulysses. Yeah? Well, actually, I mean, um, there's a great passage, uh, I forget which book it's in, where um, Athena likens herself to the form of a little girl who follows Odysseus' father and yes. she follows in her place. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's at the beginning of, of book seven. Yeah. Um, okay, it, also if you go back to page 49, which is book um, two, line 406, here Athena is talking to Telemachus, likened to mentor in voice and appearance. And um, she says to him, Telemachus, already now your strong, grieved companions are sitting at the oars and waiting for you to set forth. So let us go and not delay our voyaging longer. So spoke Pallas Athena, and she <laughs> led the way swiftly, and the man followed behind her, walking in the gods' footsteps. And if you go to the beginning of book three, this is page 52, um, book three, line 29. Again, Athena is leading Telemachus, and um, she says to him, Telemachus, you will look into your own heart, um, and some, some you will find in your own heart, some the divinity will put it in your mind. I do not think that you could have been born and reared without the gods' will. So spoke Pallas Athena, and she led the way swiftly, and the man followed behind her, walking in the gods' footsteps. So that's a line that is repeated several times. There are reasons that Virgil noticed it. There are reasons that it stands out. That image is something that Homer repeats. Now, that repetition of imagery, there are passages in Homer that are 30 or 40 lines long. 
that get repeated verbatim. Those are usually instructions. That is, those are usually um, Zeus telling someone to say something and then they repeat, or Hera telling someone to say something and they repeat what's being said. Those are the, those are the large form repetitions. Then there, there are short form repetitions or shorter form repetitions that occur on the level of a line or a couple of lines, like the thing about not going against Aegis bearing Zeus, like the man following behind walking in the god's footsteps. There are even shorter form repetitions um, which are what are called the Homeric epithets. And this is something that um, we've, we've alluded to several times, especially when we hear of um, brave, brave, the cowardice of brave Alexandros, um, the, the um, violent sins that irreproachable um, Diomedes has just committed. That is that you sometimes, they, these epithets are really noticeable in that Sir Robin moment, bravely he beat a bold retreat, where an epithet <coughs> and the sentence, where, where an adjective that applies to someone applies to them in a sentence where they're doing the opposite of, the, of what the adjective seems to say about them. Now that is, in fact, a, when that happens, it's a tool for Homeric irony. Um, but what makes it possible as a tool is the fact that there are certain names that always get associated with certain descriptors. Those are called epithets. And um, so we are always hearing about swift-footed Achilleus. We are always hearing of Hera of the White Arms. We're always hearing, or we sometimes hear, of um, Zeus, of dawn, rosy-fingered dawn. We sometimes hear the dawn is scattering saffron. Um, we sometimes hear of Zeus of the Ages. We sometimes hear of Zeus, the god of heralds, or Zeus, or the heralds who are sacred to Zeus. Um, there are formulae that are very, very short form um, that take the form, let's say, typically, of um, swift-footed Achilles, or in both the Iliad and the Odyssey, resourceful Odysseus. And if you're reading the Lattimore, um, you might notice that you're not sure of a certain phrase or of a certain um, formula that gets repeated many times, whether Odysseus is darkly resourceful or whether Odysseus says, whether, um, whether um, looked at him then looked at him darkly resourceful Odysseus. That is, do you remember moments like this where you might think Odysseus is darkly resourceful, that's really interesting poetry, or darkly resourceful, what is that supposed to mean? Um, how are you darkly resourceful? Um, or you might simply think then, then um, darkly resourceful Odysseus answered. And it may be you might have had some trouble parsing that. The reason you might have had trouble parsing that is if you came upon it, is, is this familiar to people? Do people remember moments of darkly resourceful Odysseus, those three words in that order? <laughs> the reason you might believe or come to believe that darkly resourceful is a compound term. That is, not that Odysseus, not that resourceful Odysseus did something darkly, but 
that Odysseus is a darkly resourceful person. The reason you might come to believe that is that the phrase resourceful Odysseus is always preceded by the adverb darkly. And that might therefore lead you to believe that there is a phrase in Homer's mind, darkly resourceful. Um, it's probably, that's probably the wrong way to parse it, but it's not entirely wrong to parse it that way. The interesting question is why, when Homer talks about resourceful Odysseus, does he always precede whatever resourceful Odysseus is doing with the adverb indicating that he's doing it darkly? Now, in the beginning of the 20th century, a man named Milman Parry, who um, taught classics at both Harvard and Yale, I forget what the ordering was, um, he was hit by a car and died really young, but he was um, a revolutionary figure in the study of um, Homeric, and really in, the in, the, in, in a whole lot of um, not only classical but anthropological understanding. What he did was two things. Well, he did various things, but he did two, he put together two major things. One was he did a catalog of names and their epithets and where in a line the name and the epithet appeared and also what case the name was when it appeared with an epithet. So I just said a lot, and you probably have no idea. It may be Greek to you what I just said. Um, so, so let me unpack that a little bit. Those of you who know what inflected languages are, um, all languages, or almost all languages, I don't think Chinese has inflections, but um, most languages have some inflection, but um, some languages are highly inflected. So German is a highly inflected language. French is not a highly inflected language. English is not a highly inflected language. But if you've ever tried taking, taking German or Latin or Greek, you will know that word order is not that important to understanding the meaning of a sentence. The great joke about um, George Bernard Shaw is that he went to see a really boring German play and the person he was with said, I can't stand any more of this, I'm leaving. And Shaw said, I'm not going to leave yet, I'm waiting for the verb. Um, <laughs> because in German, verbs frequently appear at the end of sentences. And people who are learning German for the first time will often say, why don't they put the words in the natural order that you think them in? Why do they, why do they, um, why do they rearrange words that way? Well, the answer is they don't but that word order is actually not so important in an inflected language because it's the word ending. What we in English, what speaks to us in English as word order in German and in um, Latin and in Greek and I think in Russian as well, word endings matter more than word order. So in English if you say um, John hit Jim that always means that John is doing the hitting and Jim is being hit. Um, if you know the joke, throw mama from the window a kiss, um, the, the, the reason that works or doesn't work or the humor of that is that you're using a non-English word order um, that would be clear in Yiddish, which is that, um, that a kiss is the 
direct object and mama is the indirect object. Um, like, um, give him a dollar. Um, him is the indirect object, dollar is the direct object. But if you say, throw mama from the window a kiss, um, it sounds like mama is the direct object. And then suddenly there's a kiss, and now you understand that you've misunderstood it. Um, in Yiddish, you wouldn't misunderstand it. In Yiddish, a kiss would be in an indirect, ob would be in a direct object form, and mama would be in an indirect object form. So those things, if you only know English, those aren't clear distinctions. But if you um, know that these things can happen, um, if you say something like, him hit John, that would be a kind of weird way of putting it, but you would know that John was the one doing the hitting. Um, or him John hit, you would know that John was the one doing the hitting. We do get direct object inflections in English with some pronouns. Um, the um, one place where it actually matters in English and where you wouldn't think maybe there's some weird pigeon going on here is um, if you say something like, um, um, he hit, um, he, he, um, he hit John harder than me versus he hit John harder than I. If you're asked, if you're given both sentences and, and, and told that there's a difference in meaning, informally, um, we might say he hit John harder than me um, to mean two, one of two different things. But if you're told, here are two sentences, he hit John harder than me, he hit John harder than I, and you're told there's a difference in meaning, what's the difference in meaning? He hit John harder than I means what? Yeah, harder than I hit him. He hit John harder than me means what? John harder than he, than he hit me. Right, exactly. So um, there you can see that there's a difference in whether you use the nominative or the accusative case in English. The case of the direct object, me, or the case of the subject, I. In Greek, that's true across the board. That is, names and nouns, we won't, t don't talk to me about verbs, um, but names and nouns all have different forms depending on what they're doing in a sentence. So that in English, the possessive is John's book or the book of John. John apostrophe S is is basically in, that's a semi-inflected um, formation in English. In Greek, um, the way you say something belongs to Odysseus is that it doesn't belong to Odysseus. It's not Odysseus's, but it belongs, it is of Odysseus. And the O-U ending means that it is of him. It belongs to him. So wait, is that why it's translated as the Odyssey of Homer as opposed to Homer's Odyssey? No. Okay. <laughs> Not, no, no. no. Um, <laughs> but it's but what that means, if you think about it in terms of poetry, you can see how it would matter in rhymed poetry, but the Odyssey and classical poetry doesn't rhyme. What it means is that it affects the meter. That is, different word endings give names and nouns different metrical um, uh, structures so that if Odysseus is doing something in English 
and if something happens to Odysseus in English, and if somebody travels with Odysseus in English, in all those cases, it's still Odysseus that you have to, if you're a poet, you have to insert into the line um, to make it work rhythmically. Now, Homer follows a very strict rhythm, the rhythm of the dactylic hexameter. But every time he mentions Odysseus, Odysseus is going to um, have a different effect on the meter, depending on whether he's doing something, or it's being done to him, or it, there's something that belongs to him, or someone is going with him. Um, and so on, or someone is addressing him. All of those different forms of the name Odysseus, or the name Achilleus, or the name Diomedes, all of those different forms are going to have different metrical structures, which means that they're going to have to be put into a line of poetry with a different kind of mortar to fill in the gaps. Writing poetry, writing metrical poetry is like building a stone wall. You have irregular stones, and you have to fill in the gaps that putting those stones together um, leave you with. Now, what Homer does is, is he has a poetic toolkit. And the poetic toolkit is that every use of the word Odysseus that is genitive or nominative or accusative or dative, every use of that word comes with a different adjective applied to it so that Odysseus plus adjective will give you something like two metrical feet. And if Odysseus is in the accusative, you get one adjective. If Odysseus is in the dative, you get another adjective. And what Parry did, what Milman Parry did, was he listed all the names that get repeated more than once in the Iliad and in the Odyssey, and the adjectives that come with them. And he charted, he graphed, the inflection, that is nominative, accusative, dative, um, or, or genitive, or vocative. Um, vocative is when you address someone by name and you say, you, Eumaeus, what do you think of this? Um, he listed all those things, and he looked at what adjectives went with them depending, and this is yet a third parameter, where in the line they appeared. That is to say, if Odysseus is doing something at the beginning of a line, a certain adjective will always apply to him. If Odysseus is doing something at the end of a line, because line endings actually are metrically, the rules of, um, of um, Homeric meter is that the line ending is actually somewhat metrically different from the line beginning. If Odysseus is the subject, but he's doing something at the end of a line, there'll be a different adjective applied to him. If someone is doing something to Odysseus in the middle of a line, one adjective will apply to him. If someone is doing something to Odysseus at the beginning of a line, another adjective will apply to him. Um, <laughs> so what Parry discovered was there was there was almost 100% correlation 
between a name and its adjective and where in a line, in a poetic line, it appeared, where you could fit it in. So you have an abstract structure, which is the poetic line. It's like Lego. You have an abstract structure, and then you have to snap in Odysseus at various places or Achilleus at various places, and you have to snap it in so it's smooth and gapless. And what Parry discovered was that if you gave him Odysseus of the many wiles or, um, or resourceful Odysseus or swift-footed Achilleus or um, um, short-lived Achilleus or whatever, if you gave him the Greek, he would tell you, you could open up a, he didn't do this as a parlor trick, but let's just say he did. Imagine that he did this. You could open up the Iliad at random and find some mention of Achilles, and if you then read the Greek to Parry, he could tell you just swift-footed Achilles or some other version of Achilles, he could tell you how many syllables into the line that phrase appeared. And that's because each phrase is unique. That's another amazing thing about Homer. Each phrase is uniquely associated with a line position. The same phrase does not appear in more than one line position. Now, the re and what that means is that Homer has actually a very, very large um, set of um, different ways of referring to each of his major heroes um, at his disposal that he can pick without even thinking about it to place in the line where he needs it. Um, he just grabs Odysseus plus adjective and puts it where he needs it. So Parry realized that what this means is that Homer is not really composing word for word the way lots of poets do, but especially in written poetry, but he's composing often phrase by phrase. That is then darkly resourceful Odysseus. That's a phrase that gets repeated over and over again because it gets you half a line. Um, he's, he's composing phrase by phrase where the phrases include names and adjectives that apply to those names. And he's doing that um, with such skill and rapidity and speed that he can just pluck these things um, um, out of the air. It's, it's what Homer is. If you think of freestyling rap, that's what Homer does um, for over the course of a week. Um, but as in rap, um, he has certain formulations. The best way to understand what Homer is doing is to look at people improvising rap. Because when they do, what of course you'll notice is that there's certain moments that they just pick up a ready-made phrase. You've all noticed that, right? Um, if you've seen people um, uh, doing that sort of thing. Um, you pick up ready-made phrases. Homer has more ready-made phrases than anyone. So the other thing Milman Parry did, uh, Milman Parry was, um, there's a hot argument. It's an argument that continues, but it was an argument that um, goes back uh, probably to the 19th century and, and that was hotly debated at the beginning of the 20th century and in the middle of the 20th century. Um, 
whether Homer was one person or not, um, whether these poems, whether Homer knew how to write or didn't, and if he didn't know how to write, which, which started becoming clear, one reason that it's clear is that there is one moment in the Iliad that seems to refer to writing, but Homer is puzzled by it. That is that strange signs are sent in a message. Um, some, there's, a, there's an artifact um, sent on which strange signs appear that tell the king that the person bringing this artifact should kill someone. And Homer's amazed that somehow putting these strange signs on something should um, lead to information of a crucial sort without a picture. But nevertheless, information is being delivered through these odd signs. And it seems like not only can't Homer write, not only is Homer illiterate, but he belongs to an illiterate culture that doesn't have the conception of writing, but has some memory or some um, rumor of this magical and strange thing that we would recognize as writing, but that he doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, but he, he wasn't born blind. Um, you can tell he wasn't born blind because his visual, visual descriptions, like, like Milton's, are so vivid. Um, so at any rate, uh, it, but even if he were, he would have heard about this. But there's some rumor in, at the time <coughs> that Homer is um, composing that um, is some mystery, sort of like cargo cult mystery, some mystery about how signs can convey information, but Homer just doesn't know what it is. He belongs to a culture that doesn't have writing. Pictures, yes. Writing, no. And um, so it seems pretty clear, and it seemed very clear, I mean, it is clear, that um, Homer is an oral poet, and not only as with hip-hop, because that's a cool way to do poetry, but because that's the only way to do poetry, because no one was writing. Um, Homer got written down after having been memorized. So, so then the question was, could one person simply, through improvisation and then memorizing his own improvisation, because if you don't write, of course you're improvising. You may go back and refine, but you have to remember your first versions in order to refine them. The question was, could one person possibly do that? So in the 20s, I believe it was, um, there was um, a, still a very, very strong tradition of oral poetry in the mountains in Yugoslavia. And Milman Parry went to Yugoslavia, and he found the person who was regarded as um, by by these um, mountain dwellers, as um, who who were also not a literate culture. He found the person they regarded as the best um, of the singers up in the mountain. And these guys produced epics. They really would produce epics. So Perry was wondering, but could they do it out of whole cloth, or were they just kind of collectors of um, little bits that different people had composed? Um, so he asked this guy to improvise an epic. And the guy said, sure, how long? And Perry said, well, the Iliad, which is the longest, um, is about 15,000 lines long. Um, 
So, or I think it's actually a little longer, 16 or 17,000 lines long. Can you do for me, um, can you just chant for me a 16,000 line long epic? Say about me. Um, <laughs> so this guy did. And he began by saying, um, they came to us on great silver birds, um, godlike in their wonder, and they gave us cigarettes. Um, and then they required from us a song. And um, he, he basically sang for a week, four or five hours a day for a week, to Milman Perry. He took it all down. Um, and at the end of a week, he was completely exhausted. Um, but he had produced an Iliad-length work, not an Iliad-quality work, but an Iliad-length work. And Parry saw, this is sort of in the age where um, spectrography is really important in astronomy, he saw that certain signatures of, um, you could, that you could, you could determine that there were certain signatures of oral poetry that they had to do with repetition, epithets, um, place in the line. Yugoslav is a highly inflected language the way Greek is. Yugoslavia borders on Greece. Um, and that um, various things to be found in the song of Milman Parry um, were to be found exactly in the same way in the Iliad and the Odyssey, including this question of um, where in the line a name appeared and what adjectives applied to the name. So that was really strong evidence for Parry um, that oral poetry um, which he had just seen, um, had certain characteristics which you could then find almost, almost isomorphically in Homer. It was also strong evidence that one person could do it. And one of the things that he dis discovered was that um, this poet, whose name I don't remember, it's somewhat embarrassing not to, I mean, one should because he produced this thing, um, but that this poet also had long passages where someone would say to someone else, go tell him this, and then they would say exactly the same thing. That is, that's another signature of oral poetry, is the repetition of instructed speeches. Go to him and tell him the following, then 10 lines, and then 20 lines later, so she went to him and told him, and then the same 10 lines are repeated. Um, another thing that we see all over the Iliad and the Odyssey. And what Parry realized and what the guy explained to him was that those were moments when he would be thinking about what to say next. So he was incredibly good at memorizing his own poetry. That is, he would produce 10 lines, and then he could repeat those 10 lines verbatim three or four minutes later. And not only could he repeat those 10 lines verbatim three or four minutes later, but that was the easiest thing for him to do. That is, once he'd said 10 lines, the easiest thing for this guy to do would be to repeat them. He could do that on autopilot. And not only could he do that on autopilot, that was the point, was that he could go on autopilot and repeat those lines while what he was really concentrating on was what to say next. So this is a kind, you've all done this, you even do this in class as far as um, some people have told me, um, multitasking. What the, what the oral poet does is to multitask. 
It's like talking on the phone and writing an email at the same time. You know how when you're talking on the phone and write to your parents and writing an email? So what you're saying to your parents is just um, stuff that you're paying no attention to because it's what you always say, right? Yeah, my day was okay. Yeah, the work is really hard. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to coming home for Thanksgiving. And you're paying no attention to what you're saying. That's what Homer is doing, is he's paying no attention to what he's saying as he's writing in his mind what he's going to say next. Yeah. So how did this stuff eventually get written down? Because I'm pretty sure they didn't write it down when Homer was alive. No, um, although there's some debate about, about how much um, time between Homer's composition and the writing down. Um, and uh, the extremes are 500 years to like 50 years. Ilona. Who said? No, I said, <laughs> I said some people think that, but that we're going to treat him as one person. Um, there's, this is, again, um, something that's hotly debated in their styles in, um, in classical and literary critical history as to whether to think of Homer as a single person, whether to think of Homer as two people. Um, that is the author of the Iliad and, as Samuel Butler put it, the authoress of the Odyssey. Um, Butler makes a strong argument that the, that the composer of the Odyssey is actually a woman. Um, or whether what happens here is a little bit like what um, we've discussed happening in the Bible, which is that um, there are a lot of people who um, have stories to tell and have composed, um, have composed stories um, and dactylic hexameter, which then come together. One reason to think, what, that's what Perry wanted to know, was, was Homer um, a single person or not? And um, the any, any, any gave a proof of possibility that Homer was a single person, which is that this guy in Yugoslavia was a single person, and he did the sort of thing that Homer did. For me, one major reason I go back and forth on whether I want to think of the Iliad and the Odyssey as, by, as being by the same person. Um, clearly, the Odyssey is a new work with the Iliad in the background. Um, the, there are two ways to think about the relation of the Odyssey to the Iliad. One is Homer is saying, having done that, now I will do something new. The way, having, the way Shakespeare would say, having written a tragedy, now I will write a comedy. Or having written a comedy, now I will write a tragedy. The other possibility is um, Homer told one story in the Iliad, um, which is the story of um, glory and um, dying gloriously rather than surviving and making a bid for immortality. I, the authoress of the Odyssey, am going to um, tell a counter story. That is a story about why the Iliad is wrong about what really matters in epic poetry. Um, as I say, I tend to think that they were written by the same person, but the debates go from <coughs> um, many different people um, who down the ages these stories get, um, um, and, and formulations um, get harmonized with each other and put together to a single person. The two extremes are many different people writing each to a single person writing both. Um, I tend to fall on the single person writing both side. Um, a lot of people think that makes me naive, but um, it's never been proved or disproved. 
Um, the reason I tend to fall at least on the side of a single person ultimately responsible, whatever that would mean, but ultimately responsible at least for the Iliad and a single person ultimately responsible for the Odyssey. Perhaps not the same two people, the same person, perhaps two different people, but one person ultimately responsible for the Iliad and one person ultimately responsible for the Odyssey is that the architectonic structure of the two works is so amazingly tight. Um, especially, I think you should be seeing this in the Odyssey. That is that we start with the story of Telemachus and then we get backstory through Menelaus and then Odysseus comes in and he's on the island of Calypso and then we go back um, as he tells his story um, and we, we loop backwards um, in flashback and in nested flashbacks which eventually get us back to Odysseus, um, where we first saw Odysseus um, on his way to go see um, the, the Phaeacians after Calypso lets him go. But the whole thing is also framed by the question of how did Odysseus anger Poseidon so much that he had so much trouble getting home. Um, and that is told to us, that's, that's on the first page of the Odyssey, that that's the issue. That, that Odysseus had angered Poseidon by, kill, by blinding Cyclops, um, by blind, blinding Polyphemus. And then that's framed by the question of what will happen when Odysseus gets home and finds all the suitors there. And all of that is just so well put together um, that it's not just a loosely connected series of stories. Um, the subordination of story to story to story to story, the carefulness, the you could say memento-like carefulness um, by which these stories are all put together um, means that there has to be one person who, who um, was the shaper of this. How much material that person used, that's another question. Um, and not unanswerable in theory and possibly not even unanswerable in practice, um, but so far unanswered. Um, were you going to say something? Uh, I was just wondering, is it possible that during Homer's lifetime, another culture might have heard his story and then written it down? And it, written it down. Um, I think the basic idea is you can, that there was, there was writing in, in, very ancient Greece, and then there were dark ages where, where writing seems to have been forgotten. And then it returned. Um, and the, it was written down um, right after they rediscovered or reinvented writing. Um, and so it was certainly part of the culture. And the idea, I mean, it may be a naive idea, but the basic simple idea is um, the poem existed because it was memorized. Um, and then it was written down, like the Mishnah, it was written down um, once writing started replacing memorization as the way to um, keep literary culture alive. Um, so it wasn't, so however the Greeks rediscovered writing, um, which no doubt had to do with contact with other cultures, when they rediscovered it, um, practically the first thing they did, just the way Gutenberg, the first thing he did was he printed a Bible um, when they rediscovered writing, the first thing they did was to write down the Iliad and the Odyssey, which people had by heart. 
which were being chanted by heart by singers. Um, so the question when the poem took the form that it did now um, is unanswered, but it certainly there certainly is in each poem, and we can just say this is who Homer is. If the 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 minimalist version of who Homer is is the person who in each poem is the commanding and dominating arranger of the final version of the poem. And that's not just some editor who's arranging the final version of the poem, but someone who figured out how to put all this together to make one stunning story in each case. Um, and the thing is, the details, the way the details interact with each other is just so powerful and so profound in both the Iliad and the Odyssey. And the setups, um, even on the, on the microscopic level, for things that are going to happen later, and which we'll talk about in a minute, the setups um, are really strong indications that each poem, and maybe the two poems together, evidence a single dominating and extraordinary and extraordinarily sophisticated intelligence. And um, the, the more you talk about Homer as a single person, the more aware you are of that intelligence, and the more you think of this as a kind of um, um, just just digest of different stories and songs that have come together, the more you're going to miss about the dominating intelligence who is ultimately responsible for this. And like Shakespeare, who took his sources and turned them into Shakespearean plays, sometimes repeating his sources word for word. But so what? They're still Shakespeare and not the sources. The same is true of, um, of Homer. Um, Homer is at least with respect to where this material comes from, what Shakespeare is in the history plays and in some of the later tragedies, in the Roman tragedies. He's, he's got at least that much sophistication and that much control over the material. Did he compose every line out of nothing? Almost certainly not. Um, and there is evidence of an old Anatolian, there's a fragment of an old Anatolian poem that talks about, um, in Old Anatolian, which is probably the Trojan language, talks about Windy Ilion. That's the only thing that um, remains, that's the, that's the fragment. Um, and that goes back to about 1400 BCE. Um, but really, you, you need to get that there's a dominating intelligence in each of these poems. And it makes more sense to think it's the same one in both. But certainly each one has a fabulously sophisticated, um, dominating intelligence, putting everything together. Um, yeah? What is the exact relationship between Poseidon and the Cyclops? Because it kind of seems like Poseidon is a loose cannon anyway. And yeah. Well, he needs an excuse, but remember that he's on the he's on the Achaean side, um, and partly. So here you have um, a, an island king um, for whom sailing the seas is of of absolute importance, um, who has um, in a, in a, a region in which there are lots of earthquakes, um, and suddenly he's in this in this situation where he's angered Poseidon um, because of what he's done. To, um, to, to, the, to Polyphemus. And um, so that makes things really, really hard. What, what Virgil is going to do, as you'll see in the Aeneid, is um, Aeneas is a little bit like in Odysseus's position. Um, I'll just say this, that the Aeneid 
um, which is 12 books long, is Virgil combining the Iliad and the Odyssey, or combining an Iliad-like story and an Odyssey-like story into a single work. And the first half of the Aeneid is a re, um, redoing of the Odyssey, and the second <coughs> half is a redoing of the Iliad. And the first thing that happens in, in the Aeneid is the angry god is Juno, that is Hera. Why? Because Aeneas is Trojan. So that just goes perfectly well with um, picking up from the Iliad and Hera's anger at the Trojans. Um, but with Poseidon, things are trickier, but it's partly because um, unlike for Virgil, for Homer, the gods are completely um, um, flighty and fickle. And that's one of the things that mortals have to deal with, is the fickleness of the gods. Um, yeah. So you, you were talking about um, uh, the, the over the in intricateness of both stories. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, yeah, I did know, they did both seem very intricate, but I, I know I'm not, we're only about halfway through the Odyssey. It seems to me like the Iliad's much more intricately plotted than the Odyssey is, and the, the Odyssey seems much more linear and much... Whereas the Iliad's kind of, you have a whole bunch of things that come together and play against each other, whereas the Odyssey's just kind of one thing after the other. Well, it's, okay, there, there, you are only halfway through. Um, and there's, you know, I think ultimately I would say that's true, but um, that is that the Odyssey really is episodic. At least, at least books 6 through 12 are highly episodic. Um, and and what they are is Odysseus t saying, "Look at all these really interesting things that happens." Do you want to address that? Okay, look at all these really things, really interesting things that happen to me. But on the other hand, um, the main story is the suitors are harassing Penelope, and Telemachus is finally an adult and wants to do something about it. Um, and what he wants to do is to find his father so that the two of them, um, the two adults, um, can, can um, uh, get rid of the suitors and so that he can make, um, so that the reunion of his parents can occur. And then, again, you get backstory through the wanderings of Telemachus. So if you were just to graph you know, do one of those um, Edward Tuft-like graphs um, of the motion of characters pegged to where in the poem they are. First you have Telemachus leaving Ithaca and going to see Nestor and Menelaus, and then you have Menelaus telling the story of his return and of the death of Aeas and of the death of Agamemnon. Um, and then you have Helen um, talking to Telemachus and um, um, per, um, Peristratos about these things. And then you have um, the story of um, how Menelaus got Proteus to tell him all the information that he needed about what he had to do to get back. And all of that is giving you um, a kind of sense of what the structure of punishment and of reparation is in the Odyssey. What you have to do to get home if you've done something wrong, and what risks you're taking if you try to come home, and what might be waiting for you at home. All of that is set up before Odysseus even enters the poem. 
and he only enters the poem when we find, have him on the island of Calypso, and then we plunge in Medius race, and then he gets to um, Alcinous and, and, the, and, and the land of the Phaeacians, and then he goes back to tell his story, bringing us back to where he was before. And now he's going to head home, and all these stories about homecoming or failed homecoming um, are, are the background um, or the possible um, structures of plot that Odysseus has to be thinking about and have in mind, and that we're thinking about and having in mind as he returns home. And in the meantime, the people that Menelaus has told him about are the people he meets in hell when he goes to the underworld. Um, so A.S. is dead, and then Odysseus goes and tries to talk to him in the underworld. Achilleus is dead, and Odysseus talks to him in the underworld. And in the underworld, he's given a prediction of his own future. Um, and that prediction of his future is something that doesn't appear at all in the Odyssey except Tiresias's prophecy, but it's what Dante picks up. That is, you will find that Odysseus, under the name Ulysses, that's his Latin name, um, reappears in Virgil and then reappears in Dante. And in Dante, the prediction that Tiresias has made gets at least half fulfilled. Um, that story is a story that Dante tells, that Tiresias has hinted at. Dante is the first person to tell the story. He just makes it up. Um, but at any rate, all of these things are being nested together. It's the, the Odyssey is much more like Russian dolls than the Iliad is. The Iliad is, so even though it seems linear, it's only locally linear. Um, and um, the events that you're getting locally are told in flashback within flashback within flashback. Um, and there are a series of those things that are extraordinarily well, um, uh, the, 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 the um, arrangement of them is extraordinarily well done. Yeah. Yeah, kind of. Um, it's it's a hard call. Um, so they Zeus, the way, I think the way to put it is to say that Poseidon is the most angry um, at what he feels is the dissing he's getting from Zeus. Hades is kind of indifferent because he's off in the underworld. Um, but Poseidon says, look, we're equal, but you're not treating me as equal. Zeus never says to Poseidon, look, we're equal, but you're not treating me as equal. So when one person complains um, and one person doesn't about the fact that they're supposed to be equal, um, it's the same thing as Achilles and Agamemnon now on the level of the gods. That's part of the irony that, that Homer wants here. Um, and um, uh, so Zeus really when he puts his foot down, he believes himself um, and probably correctly superior to Poseidon, um, but supposedly they're equals. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Demodocus. Yeah, thank you. Starts a story about Ares and sweet Scarlet with Aphrodite. Yes. And um, Zeus turns to Hermes and says, Hermes said of Zeus, blah, 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 would you lay with Aphrodite? But then it says Ag Agrippate is the answer, and I wasn't sure if that's Yeah, it's another name for him. Um, yeah, if you look, that it was it, he was also named that in the Iliad. Um, <laughs> if you look at... 
the glossary um, on page, uh, well, where is it now? <laughs> um, uh, page 363, it'll explain why. So, Agaria Fontes means the slayer of Argos, an epithet of Hermes. Um, so, he's sometimes called the slayer of Argos because one of the stories of Hermes is that he charmed Argos to sleep um, in order to... Um, that it's a myth about, about stealing um, cattle that are sacred to Zeus, that he charmed Ar the, the guard dog Argos to sleep and then slayed him. So that's one of the things that he's called. Um, so yeah, if you're puzzled like that, just look in the back. Um, some of the epithets, people don't know what they mean, um, but that one is one that, that they do know. Um, all right, so <laughs> moving right along. Um, go again back. We were um, on page 93, um, which is, uh, again, the story of, of um, Calypso letting Odysseus go, book five, um, <coughs> around line, well, we were looking at the man followed behind her walking in the gods' footsteps, um, but go to page 213. Now remember that what um, Calypso has done for Odysseus is said, you can have immortality. Stay here with me and I'll make you immortal. Now what's happened in the Iliad, and this is how the Odyssey is different from the Iliad. What I'm now just going to say, you can take it with a grain or two grains of salt, um, but just um, both for convenience and for um, the sort of way it forces us to think, I'm just going to say what, I'm going to call the author of both books the same person. I'm going to say they're both written by Homer, both composed by Homer. Um, what Homer is doing is effectively saying what the Iliad was about is human mortality, the inevitability of death. That's in one of Achilles' great speeches what he says in the Iliad is it doesn't matter whether you're a great hero or a nobody, you die. What it means to be a human is to die. And the question, the only question that can then arise for the heroes of the Iliad is whether you die with honor and gloriously, the um, Greek word for that is kleos, um, or whether you die in a way that is obscure or even shameful. Um, the question of, what ha of who gets your armor and what happens to your body and so on, all of those have to do with the kind of death that you have rather than with the question of death itself. The tragedy that Achilles is the greatest of all the Greek heroes. Um, Achilles' great complaint in the Iliad is it doesn't matter. And then if you want to say that it does matter, the answer is it only matters in the most in 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 a way that is ultimately um, extremely small, the difference between glory and obscurity. Um, Achilles is going to say the same thing in the underworld here in the Odyssey. That's one connection between them is that consistency in Achilles' view. Both living and dead 
he complains about the um, extreme cheat that being a mortal is. If you are mortal, then you have been tricked into thinking that things matter that don't matter because you die. Ultimately, that's the only truth, is the truth of death. So now in the Odyssey, the Iliad, in a way, you could say is the book of death, the book of war and the book of death. The Odyssey is the book of love and the book of homecoming. And um, again, in the Iliad, war and death are um, opposed to love and homecoming, but war and death win. That is, love and homecoming, Hector and Andromache are, represent that theme, but they lose. In the Odyssey, Odysseus and Penelope represent that theme, and they win. And um, that idea, again, this is all connected to the question of hospitality, which is that hospitality, you owe people hospitality because if you don't give them hospitality, they can die. And hospitality is what we have against death. And the question is, how far can hospitality um, carry life against death? And um, one thing you will notice as you finish the Odyssey is that Penelope, not recognizing Odysseus, gives him hospitality. That's a crucial fact that she will do that. So just notice when it happens that Odysseus is um, received as a stranger hospitably, not only by Alcinous and not only um, by, by other figures, and not only is Telemachus received hosp hospitably, but Odysseus is received hospitably by Penelope. That's really crucial. And by Telemachus, when they don't recognize him. That's really crucial. And the reason the Cyclops is the central villain, the catalyst of all that goes wrong, is that he is not hospitable. That Zeus, that, excuse me, that, that Odysseus says to him, by Zeus's sacred laws of hospitality, you should receive us as guests. And the Cyclops laughs and says, no, I'm receiving you as dinner. Um, I'm having you for dinner. Um, in the in in the old joke way, um, so the Cyclops is the outstanding example in the Odyssey of the inhospitable monster, and hospitality is the great thing. So here, what Odysseus says to Calypso again, this sets the theme. Um, she says, "You can be immortal." Um, this is book five, let's say, line 205. I wish you well however you do it. That is, go back to your own house. But if you only knew in your own heart how many hardships you were fated to undergo before getting back to your country, you would stay here with me and be the lord of this household and be an immortal for all your longing once more to look on that wife for whom you were pining all your days here. And yet, I think that I can claim that I am not her inferior, either in build or stature, since it is not likely that mortal women can challenge the goddesses for build and beauty. And then he answers, Then resourceful Odysseus spoke in turn and answered her, Goddess and queen, do not 
be angry with me. I myself know that all you say is true and that circumspect Penelope can never match the impression you make for beauty and stature. She is mortal after all, and you are immortal and ageless. But even so, what I want in all my days I pine for is to go back to my house and see my day of homecoming. Yeah. It's actually interesting. Calypso and Circe seem both a lot less pissy than most of the other gods. Like, yeah. say, Aphro- like Aphrodite, Ares, uh, Athena would tend to throw tantrums pretty yeah. much when um, so- when someone like Odysseus uh, slighted them or yeah. didn't do what they wanted in that kind of way. Yeah. But it, it, it's really it really surprised me how relatively <laughs> calm they were about it. Yeah, um, and they're. Do you want to say something about that? Oh, I have something slightly different. Well, yeah, no, it's true, and um, it's one reason that but- that Samuel Butler in the nineteenth century um, argued that the Odyssey is written by a woman. That mm-hmm. is, that um, the uh, the ability of females in the I mean, the the females in the Odyssey are are extremely important, and their ability to enter um, sympathetically into the lives of others, even to their own cost, um, that's something that makes them, um, you could say, fully human. So you're absolutely right to notice that. And you're right to see that these figures you think are going to be villains turn out not to be villains. Even Cersei, um, who really is a villain, ultimately turns out to to have good advice and and to, um, um, she's not happy about it, but to tell Odysseus the right thing. Um, yeah. Um, so I think this is related to uh, hospitality. Um, I was wondering um, what the deal is with all of the bathing and washing going on. Where whenever Odysseus goes somewhere, like the handmaidens are yeah. washing him, Calypso washes yeah. him, and there's oil and all this stuff. And I'm just wondering what the deal is with that. Uh, yeah. No. It is. It is hospitality. It's. It's. Um, um, it's. You know. They're. They're engaged in the. In. In. You know. Utterly filthy um, violence all the time. Um, and this is something to wash it away. Um, it happens in the Iliad, but not as much. But um, and it tends to happen more to the dead than to the living. But you know, Alexandros is re- or Paris is 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 wrapped from the fighting, and Aphrodite puts him in the tub. Um, and uh, the idea that you could wash off the world and and feel refreshed. Um, in the um, Odyssey, that's there's there's a lot that that's described a lot more often, but it's but it's the same thing. There's one thing I want us to look at just um, at, by way of setup. If you go to page 98, which is um, um, book five, um, uh, line started line um, 388. Um, We've talked a little bit about similes. You, th- you probably think we've said all there is to say about similes, but we haven't even scratched the similitudinous surface yet. Um, <laughs> similes in the Odyssey are more important even than similes in the Iliad, and we didn't go anywhere near talking enough about similes in the Iliad. Um, but here's one, and then there are actually two that I want to look at in the, in the, few, in the five minutes that remain. Um, so... Um, um, there is Odysseus in the water 
398, 388 rather. Then he was driven two nights and two days on the heavy seas, and many times his heart foresaw destruction. But when dawn with the lovely hair had brought the third morning, then at last the gale went down and windless weather came on, and now he saw the land lying very close to him as he took a sharp look lifted high on the top of a great wave, and as welcome as the show of life again in a father is to his children, when he has lain sick, suffering strong pains, and wasting long away, and the hateful death spirit has brushed him. But then, and it is welcome, the God set him free of his sickness, so welcome, appeared land and forest now to Odysseus, and he swam, pressing on so as to set foot on the mainland. So Odysseus is like not the sick father who um, suddenly becomes better because, yay, there's land. It was like being on the ocean. I was sick and I thought I was going to die, but now there's land and that's great. But Odysseus is like the child who sees his father perhaps dying. Um, but then the father recovers. The land is, it's as welcome to see the land as it is for a child to see a father recovering. Odysseus is the father figure who suddenly is not in the position of the father here, but land itself is the father. So that's an unexpected lining up of the elements of the simile. A is to be as, not as C is to D, which is what we're expecting, but as D is to C which is not what we're expecting. Now, that's crucial in the Odyssey because every father is also a son. And it's going to matter. Odysseus's relation to his parents is also going to matter. Every father is also a son. And the question, <coughs> do you see him as a father or do you see him as a son, that's a question that comes up. But, he, but it's also a linkage between father and son. If you are a father of a son, then you know something and are connected and mappable onto your son by virtue of the fact that you also have a father. Every father both is and has a father, and that allows for a really interesting um, reversal or, or um, um, uh, um, paradigm um, of and, and um, recombination of, of the elements of similes. Look on the next page to see one thing that Homer wants to do is get you prepared to see similes in odd reversals of what you're expecting. So look on the next page. Um, line 428, he grabs a rock. Um, a great wave comes. This one he has so escaped, but the backwash of the same wave caught him where he clung and threw him far out in the open water. So he's been grabbing a rock, um, but, there's, but the wave takes him, and the backwash puts him out in the open water, and then we get a simile. As when an octopus is dragged away from its shelter, the thickly clustered pebbles stick in the cups of the tentacles. So in contact with the rock, and what <coughs> you will expect this to say is um, bits of the rock adhered to his hands as he was pulled away. Um, of course you're expecting that. An octopus, um, 
is is grabbing something and its its feet are pulled away, but pebbles are stuck there in the same way. The pebbles stick in the cups of the tentacles, so in contact with the rock. And then we get the opposite. The skin from his bold hands was torn away. That is, it's not that parts, pebbles and parts of the rock adhere to his hands the way they do to the octopus, but parts of his hands appear to the rock the way pebbles adhere to the octopus. So you get a simile, but the direction of comparison is the exact opposite. The rock is like the like the, um, the feet of the octopus. And the um, hands of Odysseus are like the rock, are like the pebbles that adhere to those feet. Now, it's an interesting thing that keeps you on your toes. It's just part of a whole lot of poetry is surprise and delight. But it's also that Homer persistently in the Odyssey, for an effect that he is, that he is planning for for 12,000 lines, there's an amazing effect of a reverse simile, as we can call them, at the end of the Odyssey. He's preparing for that effect over and over again by giving you similes like this, where the simile works, but surprisingly, because it's the reverse of the thing you think it's going to say. And, the, and he's setting up an amazing example of that at the end of the Odyssey. And the fact that he's setting it up is what I want to draw your attention to now. Because again, it shows you that there's a single controlling intelligence here that is working to set that moment up um, and knows that that moment is going to be one of the great climactic moments in this poem. All right, book 18, if you can, please, by Friday. But remember, you have to have it finished by a week from Friday. Um, I have a question for you.